Alrighty then. Hi everyone, and welcome to The Low Bar, where we gather together and discuss actual crimes over drinks with like-minded people. I'm your bartender, Jay, and tonight I'm drinking a pink gin. This cocktail dates back to the mid-19th century, and it's pretty much straight-up gin with a couple of dashes of bitters to give it some color. Uh, too much bitters, and you'll muck up the flavor of the gin. It kind of goes with my mood today, which isn't great. I'll admit it, everyone has a day like this, which is why getting together with friends and distracting myself is so very important. And if we happen to talk about people with much bigger problems than I'm having, well, that's a lot healthier, right? I mean, I suppose that I could sit here and stew, um, but I'm not gonna. Make yourself comfortable and pull up a bar stool. Tonight we're going back about 140 years, give and take, give or take, whichever. We're also heading north up into the wilds of Bucksport, Maine to talk about the murders of the Trim family. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give a contact, content warning. Uh, don't contact the dead. <laughs> don't contact the homicide victims. Um, I'm going to give a content warning for some graphic descriptions. Um, they're not gratuitous. You know, I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty. Uh, but they do... They are necessary to show how the bodies were found, and people who are sensitive to fire or to gross corpse descriptions might want to mute that part out with an air horn. Um, I mean, your mute button is also fine, but the air horn will be nice and refreshing for your coworkers, roommates, and or small children. It'll really get their heart rate pumping, kind of like aerobics without all the moving around. I mean, they'll appreciate it. They'll send you a fruit basket. Um, possibly a bombed one, but you know, it's the thought that counts. Um, actually, only one of the three victims was actually called Trim. Uh, that would be the man of the house, the father. Um, but because he was the man of the house, that's the name that sticks, because patriarchy. happened? Well, it was a dark and stormy night. Okay, not really. It was a clear, cool night sometime between midnight and 3 a.m. on October 13th, 1876, on a farm just outside the town of Bucksport, Maine. Bucksport is just south of Bangor, for those who don't know, and the stars feel awfully close up there. It could only have been more impressive in 1876, before light pollution was such a problem. A farmer, who probably wasn't up to much good himself at that time of night, happened to glance over at the home of his neighbor. I know that I was getting down on the patriarchy a minute ago, but um, that's kind of just my thing. There is a reason that the head of the household got the naming rights in this case. Um, he was pretty well known around town. He was, uh, you know, he was the man. And the other two victims had moved away and had only recently returned. So it does kind of make sense that it's known as the Trim family murders as opposed to the Thayer family murders. Um, Robert Trim was a reasonably prosperous farmer, uh, at least by the standards of the town and the time. He had raised several children, and uh, his wife had only passed a couple of years before the murders. 
Um, I say pass like it's a kidney stone. I mean, I don't know why we say it that way. Um, she died. Um, anyway, something seemed to be amiss over at the trim farm. While the neighbor normally wouldn't be able to see much from such a distance, he could now see see the the farm just fine, even though it was the middle of the night. And that's because the house and the barn were on fire. By the time the neighbor roused his sons and everybody else and ran over to the farm, it was too late. The buildings were fully engulfed, and the heat was far too intense to get inside and look for injured people. In the morning, though, once the flames had been tamed, neighbors went in to see if anyone had survived. Um, what they found, and the investigation that followed, were bizarre enough to raise questions into the present day. Trim, 73, was dead. His remains were found with severe burns over the entire torso and head. His arms and legs were completely burned to ash. His daughter, Melissa Thayer, had recently moved home after the death of her husband. Melissa's flesh had completely burned away, leaving only bones. The remains of her only child, four-year-old Josie, were never found. So there wasn't ever really much of a mystery when it comes to who done it. Um, it seems that Robert Trim had been giving aid to a local man who was known to be a sea captain. Um, the guy's name was Edward Smith in the literature. And yeah, there is literature. We'll get to that. Um, this man may or may not have had a wife, uh, I've seen her referenced in, I think, one of the sources. Most of the time, it's just the captain himself who gets the attention. Um, again, patriarchy. Excuse me, that gin is really good. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he was doing odd jobs and staying on the farm in an outbuilding. Um, he, uh, the night before the murder, uh, on October 12th, Melissa Thayer was seen, what, she walked towards the town, uh, to go to the post office, and she encountered a friend whose name has been lost to history. Um, this friend was being escorted by Captain Smith, um, and... He escorted them both into town, and then he escorted Melissa back towards the farm. Uh, he had also visited with Robert Trim earlier in the day after hunting rabbits. Um, this came out during the trial. Um, as things happened, Smith was the last person to see Melissa alive. Bucksport wasn't a big town. It was um, the kind of place where everybody kind of knew everyone's business, at, you know, even without social media. So everyone already knew that he had run into Melissa. And everybody knew where to find him, too. And when all of the townspeople 
went to go see him, they found him in blood-stained clothes. This wasn't necessarily damning by itself. The guy had been hunting. Hunting can be kind of messy. Now, I know some guys who hunt, and I know some women who hunt. Um, while it can be kind of messy, it isn't usually that messy. Um, these clothes were very bloodstained. He did not try to conceal the blood by washing his clothes. That would be too easy. No, he tried to dye his clothes. Um, and he did such a botched job of dyeing the clothes that it was clear that the blood was, well, blood. So yeah, not a huge mystery. He may have been a sea captain, but, you know, when it came to stuff on land, apparently he just wasn't that bright. And, uh, <laughs> he was arrested, he was tried, and he was found guilty. So yes, there was a trial. A trial by jury, not by angry townspeople. And the people on this jury sat and considered all of the reasonable evidence. That evidence consisted of the dyed clothes. It consisted of eyewitness testimony placing Smith alone with Miss Melissa Thayer that night. There was also a bloodstained shawl, a bloodstained rock, and the knowledge that Melissa had $850 in cash left to her by her husband that she int intended to use to start up a school. Adjusted for inflation, that's roughly 21000 today. That's not a ton, but it is a reasonable motive for robbery. The jury thought so, too. They also believed that Smith burned Melissa's body before Robert Trim's, during, due to the uh, more advanced destruction of her remains. I'm not sure when the science of arson investigation really caught. Haha, <laughs> see what I did there? But there are people who people out there who could probably tell you what variables were missing to explain why the bodies burned at different rates. Uh, fuel is one of them, obviously. Um, we don't know if he used an accelerant on her remains or if uh, or if her clothes were treated with something to stiffen them that turned out to be flammable. Um, yeah, remember, this was a time when asbestos was the, the hot thing. Oh, that was, a, I didn't mean that one. I'm sorry. We don't know if she was just closer to the fire. Maybe the locals just got it right and she was burned first. She died first and was burned first. What I can tell you is that it takes a lot of fuel to get a fire hot enough to consume human remains. It's not surprising that the neighbors couldn't get in there. Um, the judge did not sentence Smith to death. As it turns out, Mainers have historically been reluctant to enact the ultimate penalty, even when it was a legal option. After all, people are fallible, and people can be mistaken or biased. It seems that they would rather be able to rectify a mistake than uh, not. Um, the death penalty was abolished in Maine in 1887, and while it does get proposed periodically as a punishment for certain types of murder, uh, it has yet to be reinstated. 
Um, Smith was killed by another inmate 30 years after his life sentence began. Uh, his head was smashed in with a pipe. But this isn't where the legacy of the trim triple homicide ends. After all, it's hardly the first time a family has been wiped out by some external malevolence. Uh, their truly unique nature lies in how the murder was uncovered in the first place. All right, so when neighbors first arrived at the trim farm looking to help investigate or gawk, none of which is necessarily exclusive to the others, people assumed that it was an accident. Fire was an ever-present concern of rural life in the 19th century. It was a pretty big concern of urban life, too. Um, Boston burned in 1872, only four years before these murders. Um, Chicago burned a year before that, and... You know, everybody knows the story about Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Um, most cities were built out of wood, especially in the residential areas, and most transit came from horses. Horses mean more wood, you know, because you've got to find a place to put them, and a lot more accelerant in the form of straw and or mm, horse waste. Um, light lighting came from flammable sources like gas in developed areas, and oil, wax, and tallow in the countryside. People cooked with fire, and they did so in clothing that still caught fire on a regular basis, just like it had in the 18th century and before. Cemeteries from the era are full of women who burned to death from injuries sustained in cooking. So, people assuming that the fire was accidental wasn't exactly out of line. These things did happen all the time. But here's the thing, you're, and you're going to love this. Word of Trim's death reached a nephew, who obviously lived in the area, and he made his way to the scene. According to witnesses, he turned pale, and he said he had had a vision of his uncle. In this vision, the uncle told him to go down to the lane... Apparently there's only one lane. Told him to go down to the lane and find a pole leaning against the fence. The neighbors, being good practical Mainers, are, were skeptical. But also being good normal Mainers, they thought, well, let's see where this takes us. You know, why not? This place smells like a charnel house and, well, it's gross. So everybody followed this unnamed nephew down to the lane, the one lane, where they did find a pole leaning against the fence. And there was blood on the pole. There was blood on this shawl or scarf that was attached to or next to the pole. And there was blood on that too. And it was identified as belonging to Melissa Thayer. Um... So this would be pretty strong evidence. And then a neighbor noticed the trail of blood leading from the scarf and the pole to the barn. Which pretty strongly identified this whole mess as being a case of murder. Woohoo, murder! <laughs> now, 
there are other cases. I'm pretty sure that they are both cases from England, but I could be mistaken. There might be one from the United States. Um, in which evidence provided by a ghost or a specter was used in a murder investigation. Now, I'm not talking about, like, the Salem Witch Trials where, you know, a ghost or a spirit was supposed to have pricked pins into adolescent girls who didn't want to get in trouble for, you know, trying to figure out who their husband was going to be. Um, I'm talking about a ghost making an accusation to someone left behind of who murdered them. Um, this isn't quite like that. Um, this is... The spectral evidence uh, <laughs> being used to aim people in the right direction. Um, the evidence was real. The pole was real. The, the scarf was real. The blood was real. The dyed clothes. The bad dye job on the clothes. That was all real. And so were the dead bodies. Maybe the nephew really did have that dream, vision, hallucination, bad acid trip. I don't know. Maybe he just needed to justify his suspicion that none of this was an accident. Um, either way, there's nothing to suggest that this that these deaths were anything other than murder. If I had been the one writing this, um, as opposed to it really happening, to me, this nephew would have been a skeptic who just needed... Who had always been suspicious of this guy freeloading at Uncle Bob's house. Um, and maybe needed to kind of point the townspeople, the constable, whoever else, towards murder as opposed to tragic accident. Um, but, you know, maybe he really did have that vision. Don't know, don't care. Um... You know, <laughs> oh boy, go down to the lane. While we're on the subject of the bloody clothes, it does appear as though Smith was an active hunter. Um, most people were in those days in rural areas, and a lot of them still are. Um, a, I wrote down here that Smith was hunting squirrel. I read that someplace else. Most people say he was hunting rabbit at that point. Um... Before we start judging him for hunting, um, again, that was the norm. And I don't, I'm not a hunter myself. Uh, I mean, I get emotionally attached to string. I'm not going to be able to pull the trigger on Bambi. Um, but I'm not judging either. And I will happily take deer meat or whatever from someone who does hunt. Um, and I, I do have some recipes for squirrel from way back in the day when people couldn't afford to be so cheesy about where their protein came from. Um, you know, I'm not going to sit here and debate the ethics of hunting versus supermarket with you, but I'm not going to judge him for being a hunter, um, at a time when that was the norm. I'm not even going to judge the guy for getting his clothes dirty. Um, the fact that people 
felt the need to remark on how dirty, how bloody his clothes had gotten, tells me that this is disproportionate to what people would expect for someone hunting rabbit or squirrel or other small game. Um, if that, if it were in proportion to what you would expect, it wouldn't have been written down. Nobody would have thought anything of it. Um, likewise, if he had caught a lot and had to process all of it at once or whatever, that would also have been explained away. You know, oh, Captain Smith his clothes were very bloody, but he caught 300 rabbits and was in the act of skinning them when he, when we found him. Um, again, that didn't happen. What did happen was that he decided to cover up the blood, which is what really kind of blows my mind here. <laughs> you know, we've seen other historical killers at least had the good sense to burn the clothes in which they killed. Um, whether or not you think Lizzie Borden actually committed the crime she was accused of, uh, for which she was acquitted. Um, there were, there was burned clothing in the furnace at her house. Um, you know, it's not like Smith was too good to burn other things, you know, like his victims, it was dark out enough, dark enough out that he could just run back home naked if he had to. Oh, murder's okay, but running home naked isn't? I don't think so. I think that anyone who might have believed his arguments that he didn't do the crime was really dissuaded by the fact that he did try to die over the bloodstains on his clothes. Um, that's a clear consciousness of guilt, as far as I'm concerned. Um, again, by doing such a bad job of it, that they could tell what he was covering up, you know, I think that that, again, just kind of reinforced his own shadiness in the eyes of, you know, the jury, certainly, and the people recording this for history. I mean... Don't half-ass your cover story. It's the one thing you get. It's, it's just unprofessional. Okay, confession time. We're well into October, although every day is Halloween here at the low bar. Raise a glass. I didn't find the trim murders through some other true crime site or show or book... No, I found it through a ghost hunting blog. Yeah. The town was founded as part of the Massachusetts colony that would become Maine uh, in six, 1762. The first resident and namesake was a guy named Jonathan Buck. For all that the guy got a town named after him, he might not have been such an upstanding citizen after all. According to legend, he took up with a witch and fathered a child with her. When she told him about said child, he seems to have gotten the brilliant idea to rid himself of both the mistress and the unwanted child by accusing her of witchcraft, getting her convicted, and having her burned at the stake. Now, you may be thinking, um, Jay, wait a minute, 
I thought no one was burned for witchcraft in the English colonies. And as near as I can confirm, you would be right. Um, I can't find any records of witchcraft proceedings in Maine. Um, or related to Maine. Um, and I have looked. Before her death, said witch, whose name is lost, uh, seems, is supposed to have told this particular man she would dance on his grave, which is a reasonable thing to do under the circumstances. And after his death, the shadow of a woman's leg, complete with a shoe, appeared on his tombstone. Many methods have been tried to remove this stain, to include removing and replacing this stone. No dice. You can go and see this particular phenomena today. So there's probably a grain of truth somewhere in the tale, even if most of it was just made up to explain the weirdness with the shoe and the leg and the... Yeah. The town was burned during the revolution. Uh, only British loyalists were spared, which sounds grim if toasty. And then there's the paint. <clears throat> Before colonizers took over the area, it belonged to the Abenaki. But who was there before them? It's kind of a controversial statement. Most native groups have been in their ancestral areas longer than most white people were ever in theirs. Uh, we do know that there was a culture living in the Bucksport area between 6,000 and 2,000 years ago. We don't know a whole lot about them. We don't have the information to say whether or not they're related to the Abenaki people. I feel like it's safer to say that they are. There's no evidence of some kind of cataclysmic event or mass migration. So chances are good that they would be the ancestors of the people who were there later on. But pre-Columbian Amer North America is not my field of expertise, so don't quote me on that or put it in your term paper or whatever. Uh, consult the experts, people. Uh, they're called the red paint people because they seem to have prized a specific type of red paint. They painted everything with it, or at least everything that they buried with their dead. Uh, we can be reasonably sure that these are grave sites because while the remains are mostly bone fragments at this point, they are, well, recognizably bone fragments, and there are a ton of them in Bucksport. Now, I will cheerfully be the first person to throw a shoe at someone who pops off with Indian burial grounds explanations for anything weird or creepy or anything that goes wrong. No, we shouldn't be desecrating native burial sites, not because of creepy ghosty things, but because it's an asshole move. Um, not because mystical brown people will suddenly rise from the dead and chase you through, house, through town like a Scooby-Doo movie. Um... Apparently, according to some sources, the early colonists found what they seemed to have thought were large deposits of this pigment, and um, they liked it a lot, and they would mix it up into the material that they used to paint their houses. Um, but it wasn't just the pigment, it was fragments, um, like pieces, parts. I'm just saying, finding out your house is painted with a bunch of stuff from someone's grave, that's likely to leave a pall, pun intended. It's definitely going to make things a little odd for you, whether it's because you're 
because of ghosts or because your house is painted in people parts. Um, there is also a rumor of a haunting at the house where, not the house, it was a tavern at the time. I'm not sure if it's a private residence or still run as a tavern now. Um, I haven't been able to go up and check because, you know, pandemic and everything. Um, but there is a rumor that the tavern where Captain Smith was housed before his trial and during his trial, um, is haunted. So I don't know if it is or not, but, you know, with all of the other allegedly paranormal stuff going on up there, it wouldn't surprise me in the least, especially if it's painted with this weird red paint. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't count it out. And on that note, that just about does it for me. Uh, when we get to the part with the paint, it's time for me to refill my glass every time. Um, as always, if you've got a cocktail recipe to recommend, or even a mocktail recipe, no shaming, those things are good. Um, or if you've got a case you want me to talk about on here, please feel free to give me a shout. Uh, until next time, have fun, stay safe.